All right, hello and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Caleb Brown. I'm the director of multimedia here at Cato. I host the Cato Daily Podcast, which is available uh, at better podcast stores. Um, uh, it is free, so I, I'll, I'll wait if you would like, or I'll remind you again at the end of the program to please subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast. Uh, we are here to talk about the imagery of freedom uh, as we uh, celebrate. Well, we're closing in on the end of the, June 14th. the Cato show. June 14th will be the last day for Art as Messenger here at the Cato Institute, and I hope you all will take some time, uh, if you haven't already, to go through and uh, look at some of the art pieces and uh, maybe put an offer in uh, for the ones that don't have a little green dot next to them. Red. Red dot. Um, <laughs> I obviously know nothing about art. So um, to, I'm going to introduce our panel a little bit, and we'll, we'll talk for a while. Otto Rose Bitterbaum rather, is uh, founder of the Otto Rose Gallery. Uh, it's opened in 2011. It's shown and continues to show contemporary art in rotating exhibitions. I would commend you to uh, visit the gallery if you want to either dip your toe into uh, the DC art world or uh, deepen your uh, connection to the art world in DC. It is in Kensington, Maryland, and uh, please follow up with her directly if you want some more information. She's available on all of the social media platforms as well. Uh, Frank Calzone is a Cuban refugee, and uh, until this very week, he was the uh, longtime executive director of the Center for a Free Cuba. The center promotes a peaceful transition to a Cuba that respects human rights and political and economic freedoms. Uh, for Frank, the cause of a free Cuba is uh, a lifelong one, literally. Uh, and our esteemed curator of the Art as Messenger show here at the Cato Institute is Harriet Lesser. Uh, in addition, she's been an artist, teacher, a curator for more than 20 years in the Washington, D.C. area, including the Corcoran School of Art, uh, the Fillmore Arts Center, the Smithsonian, University of D.C., and the University of Maryland, uh, and she was the curator of exhibitions at the Charles Sumner Museum for nine years. Um, as we're talking about the imagery of freedom, and this is something that I think Harriet and our, and our discussions recently were sort of wrestling with, how are we going to fill this time talking about <laughs> uh, the imagery of, of freedom? I, I guess I just want to make a note an anniversary, which is, uh, this week marks 30 years since Tank Man. And, you know, I, I say Tank Man, everybody knows exactly what I'm talking about. The image is crystal clear in all of your heads. Uh, a white dress shirt, black pants, a bag of what we assume are groceries or just some items in a bag of a, a single man staring down a line of tanks. And if somebody were to merely draw that picture or paint that picture, you would think, well, it's kind of contrived. It's kind of, seems unrealistic. But of course it did happen. And in terms of uh, imagery of freedom, it wasn't a piece of art, but certainly it's an, it's an iconic image uh, and uh, presented a situation in as stark detail as, uh, as you possibly could. Um, there are two pieces here uh, on either side of me um, Harriet, Frank, why don't you tell us about these, these pieces here? Well, I'm going to um, tell you about the piece that's on. Well, you can see it. Oh, there it is. Oh, it's over here now. Um, I'm going to just get up so I can be a little closer to it. Um, 
by uh, Ladani Brahminian, who is here, um, from Iran. Uh, this addresses uh, the question of what do you, what do, what can an artist do if they are in uh, a situation that prevents them from freely expressing, uh, expressing their art. So if you take a look at this, and you take a look at certain symbolisms, and if you will, see through the glass, um, this free them. You'll notice it's done uh, in reverse painting, which is an, uh, an, ancient, uh, an ancient art form, as far as I know, only done in Ethiopia in addition. But as you take a look closer, I mean, you can see up here, that while there is this landscape, beautiful imagery, you can see also that there is wire that is on all of these, which makes it somewhat dangerous. It's reflected back behind this wall, okay? So you have a landscape, you have barbed wire along with the free landscape, and if you'll notice, there, there's blood dripping. So you go back and forth between the, the imagery that allows you to come into a landscape and a dictatorial closed uh, expression. So, Frank, I believe you have something to say about this piece to, to our left here. Sure. Um, that one. You want me to stand in there? No, you don't have to. Well, <laughs> here we go. Um, I guess we, I, I could start real quick by saying that we, we cannot really talk about freedom and art without talking about artists and what happens to artists who engage in this kind of work. Uh, what you see in there is called, it says, La Dura Noche del Toro, the difficult, the harsh night of a bull. What it is is that uh, Cuban farmers for more than 50 years are not allowed to kill, to slaughter their own, their own animals. They go to prison, they have a cow, they kill a cow, they go to prison. And so... It's, it's almost like a joke, but it's not so much a joke because what they do is they leave their gates open and they push the cattle into the road and they're accidents. And in this case, they're doing it on a terrain. So that's what it is. All right. Um, so when we see depictions of, uh, or depictions uh, in pieces of art that are attempting to convey something uh, about their own, the, uh, about freedom. Um, uh, Frank, in your experience with working for, on, on behalf of a freer Cuba, uh, it's, those images almost have to be hidden. Am I right? Like the, the, the way that they present uh, some sort of aspirational view of, of freedom, uh, as you were oh. telling us before about uh, Fidel's view on art? Well, yes and no. Going back to the artists, the uh, Cuban artists would like to be able to do whatever they want to do. If they want to do political stuff, they want to do political stuff. But in some instances, they want to do something else. The problem is that the under uh, state socialism, which is what Cuba has, the government pretends to control everything, control labor union, control the newspaper, but also control the arts. 
Fidel said it, and all Cubans know. Many years ago, Fidel said to a group of intellectuals, within the revolution, everything, outside the revolution, nothing at all. And he's the one who made the decision of what's inside or outside. And even today, there was a major uh, effort in Cuba just uh, a few months ago. The government has a decree that now if you're a painter, you must register with the government. If you're a painter, you do paints at home, and people come, you can go to prison for doing that. A lot of people don't realize the limits of the so-called opening in Cuba in regard to the art or other aspects of the situation. So it, it, even the, the most basic fundamental materials for creating art are essentially heavily regulated by the state? The Cuban government believes that if you, like Stalin did, that if you're a painter, you're a soldier for the revolution. Your message must be one of hope and optimism and anti-Americanism. If you want to do something else, you're outside the government orthodoxy, even if it's not political. You know, every time I, you know, remembering uh, Soviet art, uh, Maoist China art, and it always it, there are certain things that that really tell me that's what the, that's what I'm looking at, and that is a group of people, either farmers or factory workers, essentially all looking in the same direction, you know, smiling, looking confident, and ready to take on this typically collective challenge, and that and that's that seems to be. Uh, a huge part of art from countries where things are heavily regimented. That, that's not only Cuba. That's Cuba, that's North Korea, that's uh, China. Uh, there are many places around the world like that. And I always say, when you look at art, think about the artists. Because after all, some people claim in order to have real art, you have to have freedom. And that's true. But that means that the artist has to be free. Well, um, I would say that wherever um, art is unduly controlled, I really think that, like during various wars, there's always a resistance movement. And there's always an underground. And um, even if you are supposed to register, I know that people are not registering and that people are producing art. Um, some may get arrested, but there is, um, there is a, an incentive for art as that language to succeed and, in fact, to bring hope and inspiration instead of a uh, political uh, message. Yeah, so uh, in, in states where, uh, I should say, under governments where uh, the power to communicate, the ability to communicate is so heavily regimented. What kinds of art do we see? Uh, that is, you know, when it, in talking about the, the underground scene, what do, what do we end up seeing from the underground art world? You'd be surprised. Um, and I think what you see is individual expression. <laughs> um, and it's not of a school. Uh, and it can even take what would be a cliché from the government and turn it around. 
or have some message in it that is that people will understand, but that might not be might not be there. And people visit each other and uh, and show their art and discuss it. Oddly enough, as I've I mentioned to you earlier, in a number of places where the artists can't get out, often the art gets out. I, I can personally tell you that more art has come out in suitcases than you can imagine um, because there is a need for it and it will, it will appear, whether it's uh, you know, cliche, whether it's pasted on the back of a poster or, or something else, people will find a way. I know that Otta Rose has something to say about cliches. Well, no, I can talk about Go that ahead. later. But no, no. no, but I was just going to say it's 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 gone on through history. You know, we can look at allegorical paintings from the 15th century, the 16th right. century, the 17th century. Artists are always critiquing the times that they live in, and whether they do it figuratively through allegory or through abstraction today with little hidden symbols, or maybe just pure abstraction, they're criticizing. They're out there criticizing always. But not just criticizing, they're commenting and, and they're producing and they're showing who they are as individuals too. So I'm thinking of the President of the United States. He's got maybe an M16 in one hand, an American flag in the other. He's riding like a velociraptor. <laughs> yeah. And like he's, he's in a war zone. But right. he's taking care of business. Right. Let's make no, no, is that art? I mean, I think everything is art. You can't. I mean, it's it's a it's a comical representation incorporating a whole bunch of American cliches right, right. that are supposed. Cartooning to... is art. Any that could be like a cartoon. That's art. Yeah, it's... there's so many. Art is so free now and so open that you can't. You really can't define it. Um, I remember reading a quote like last week. I'm just forgetting the artist, but he said the definition of art is art. And that is right. the perfect definition because you can't define it. But are certain icons yeah. of of, of you know, projecting freedom, are they, do they get used up? Or well, that they... I have an example. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay, go I, for it. It's like show and tell a little bit. So <laughs> you, he had sent us some questions, Caleb had sent us some questions, and one was about the American flag. Has it become a cliche? Is it so iconic? When an artist immediately puts an American flag in work, does that take away the profoundness of the American flag, or does it even take away any politicalness from it? And so I have an example of an artist who I know well. <laughs> Um, who, um, his name is Brian DuPont, and he lives in New York. And he, every summer he travels to New Hampshire and stays in a house, and he probably was there five or six years ago. I don't really know the timetable. And he saw these little American flag napkins. And he thought, you know, it was just after the 4th of July, and he thought he loves ephemeral, he loves paperwork, and he loves taking things and using them in his work. And he said, I'm going to hold on to these. And then when Trump got elected president, he started a series called Electioneering. And I'm just going to hold them up for you. And they're not about Trump. They're not criticizing. What they are is they're honoring people that he thinks are important. So the first one, which I showed Caleb, and he's from St. Louis, is one about Kurt Flood. So in each one of these is that little paper napkin. And then he's obviously abstracted, and he's putting text in it. This one is an homage to, I never pronounce his name right, David Wajnaris, who was a wonderful artist who died of AIDS and was a real activist for um, AIDS research and treatment and gay rights. And then this one is um, another wonderful feminist artist, Anna Mendiada. So Dave, Brian did a whole series on these. And to me, none of these are cliched. But they're, 
we all recognize that there's an American flag in these, but they're all very different, and they're honoring someone. So that's one little example. So uh, in a country like the United States, there are, you know, we generally think we live in a state of freedom. Uh, you know, how do artists in the United States fundamentally differ from artists who are, let's say, have an eye on them? in terms of their creations. You said some, come, some, some art comes out in suitcases. Yes. Well, I think uh, here uh, we have um, various forms of censorship, one way or another. Um, and, and that censorship appears with a number of masks and a number of ways to do it. Um, it can appear with people saying they are offended um, by something. And then the question is, what do you do when somebody says, I am offended by this? Uh, it's become a kind of de rigueur for somebody to do something. And the point, and it's not going to stop the artist from producing. But I think uh, one of the points to consider is that maybe we don't have to do anything. There's no need because somebody is offended to take the art down to, I mean, there are alternatives to taking the art down. One of them is leaving. Um, but I think that the, the art that comes out can be more confrontational here. And, um, and I'm happy to say that we have accepted more confrontational art, and I think that's what happens here. Why? Why do we accept more confrontational? No, why is art more confrontational here? Um, we have freedom of expression. So, so, well, so, <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. but I mean, is it, you would think that even in a state where freedom of expression is severely limited, that, that would just leave people to say, well, I'm going to give a more abstract presentation. I think that's the idea. power of abstraction. I mean, everybody knows what abstract art is here. It was such a revolutionary movement. It's like what Frank said. It's also about the artist. And being an artist is being an individual and saying what you want to say. And you can say it through abstraction anywhere. Well, probably not true. There's probably places where you can't be an abstract artist. but. You can um, color means something, or the the power of putting that, you know, that gesture down on the canvas or the paper. So there's a lot of power in abstraction. Frank, why doesn't Fidel Castro like butterflies? <laughs> I uh, I think that the difference here is that we're here. I don't see anybody checking outside the door and see. If the FBI is there waiting to take you away, or when you get home, you're not going to worry that tomorrow your wife is going to be fired from her job. At the same time, the other side of the coin is that I am only in favor of people, if they're offended, let them say that they're offended. That's what a free society is all about. You could discuss, you could argue about it. You, don't, you shouldn't silence people because they're offended, but because they're offended, that doesn't mean, I think it was um, uh, when the home, uh, Supreme Court justices said that my, your hand, your right to stand your hand 
and said the tip of my nose. Mm. If they're offended, they could be offended. They don't have to go to the gallery. They don't have to buy the art. People who are not offended could do the same thing. But we should not deny them the right to be offended or to pick it or to write a newspaper article. I appreciate that, Frank, but you did not answer my question. <laughs> uh -huh. Question again. Butterflies. butterflies. Why Fidel does Castro butterflies? not like butterflies? Why? I'm sorry, why? <laughs> Castro did not like butterflies. You explain. Tell me. Oh, why. oh. I had an old friend. <laughs> He's dead. He's a painter. Many years ago in the 1960s, he had a mural at a bus station, and it was a bunch of butterflies. And Fidel has uh, labeled the opposition worms. A worm is a little insect that you can step upon. And somebody in the Communist Party, in the local Communist Party, decided that that mural of the butterflies was an allegory of the worms. They're going to grow and rebirth and take over the whole place. And they took it down, they broke it down, and my friend spent a couple of years in prison. Weird. For many years, it sounds, it sounds strange, but for many years people in Cuba would not say the word Fidel. They would go like this. Say, you know? Or they would go like that. That's what happens when you live not under a dictatorship, but under a Stalinist dictatorship. That's what happened in Russia under Stalin. So different levels of repression. So uh, to the extent that you've, you've looked at art at Ada, so you, you talked a little bit about the, what you, d you describe as a, a rich art uh, community in Cuba, uh, what does their art end up looking like? I mean, there, there's official art. Yeah. There's underground art. I'm not art. an expert. Right, but there's... But, but it looks like American it does. art. It looks... There's abstraction. There's figure. There's allegory. There's mixed media. There's sculpture. There's a video. That, they're doing exactly what everyone... I mean, we have the internet today, so artists everywhere know what's going on everywhere. And there are, and there are Cuban artists in Cuba yeah. who are great artists as far as their techniques and so yes, on. Yes, of course. Who support the regime. Of course, right. And they're, they're entitled to do that. Yeah. But they're, only one, they're the only ones that are allowed. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not a matter of uh, whether or not you offend people, it's whether you offend the one guy. Right. Right? Yeah. Uh, so... Uh, you know, we're here talking about uh, this exhibit, or we've had this exhibit here at the Cato Institute for some time. Harriet, when you're picking pieces for an exhibit called Art as Messenger at the Libertarian Think Tank, the Cato Institute, uh, you know, what, did, what was your charge? Well, the, the charge was basically to take a look at as many possible, in my mind, the many possible variations in individual expressions about art and about freedom. And how do those two, if you will, art is the messenger. So what is it the messenger of? And if that freedom is expressed in one form or in another, another media, then that's acceptable. Sometimes it's quite subtle. I hope all of you will take a look and have a conversation with these pieces. But it was intended, in my mind, to um, affect and attract people no matter what their background in art was. 
so that there are pieces that other artists will appreciate for the craft that they have, for the composition, for, for the aesthetic value of one artist to another talking, if you will. And there are some pieces that are illustrations of a feeling. They're illustrations of a response to something. And so that's where another person can come in. And it's the idea that, it's a word that's used a lot, that it is really inclusive, even if some pieces are puzzling and some pieces are not in line with the Cato philosophy, that's okay. Because philosophy is big, and if you don't agree with one point, you might find a place where you agree with another. And that's how the conversation continues. And maybe some of the people at Cato could change their mind. <laughs> right. Ada <laughs> Rose, what are some of the some of the things that you featured at your your gallery recently? Oh, I have. I mean, there's a lot of serendipity to what I choose. I go out and look at a lot of art. I've always loved text-based art, art that might incorporate words or reference text. So that's something that interests me, but it's not exclusive in my gallery. Um, I, I run the gamut. I have works that are ceramic. I have, uh, I have a sculptor um, who's a woman who uses books in a lot of art and creates these huge installations that are just gorgeous. Um, I have painters. I have mixed-media artists. It's just such a variety. And it's pretty, it used to be much more abstraction. And I would say there's a regrowth or, or an emergence back to figurative painting or figurative art in, in the world. And so I would say about a third of the artists are figurative. And they come from all over the United States. I have two French artists because I, have a, I love France, but that's my only international connection. But I, I would like to say that if you go to Otto Rose's gallery, you will see what's happening. Oh, thank you. Well, it's true. I mean, uh, there are very few places where you can go, aside from this show right here. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, but, it, but it is true. And um, so it's worth, making, uh, it's worth making the visit. And I would say, this is something also, that it's worth making a visit in person. We discussed the, how art has expanded and how, you can, how artists know what's happening. And I wonder, and I would pose this to anybody, is do you think that it is as successful to see the image on a screen as it is to be standing there? Because we have screen images that are there all the time. Well, this show is completely online as well. So it would be interesting to say, to see, what is it that affects someone when they're actually standing in front of, the, uh, in front of an art piece uh, as opposed to seeing it on a screen? I mean, I used to get very depressed because very few people come into galleries. This is universal. Um, they'll come to the opening, and in, in a given week, I might get five visitors, 10 if I'm lucky. But I love Instagram. I love that if I put an image out from my show that 500 people or 1,000 people, are, do I want them still to come to the gallery? Would I love all of you to come to the gallery? Yes, because I can talk to you. It's like being in a live classroom or a podcast. But I love that social media does get those images out there. And the, world, the one I use the most is Instagram. It's a kind world. You know, people respond and say, that's a lovely image, or that artist is wonderful. I really like what you wrote. And it's a cool world that art is really going so far afield. 
Do you think yeah. that social media makes people, I don't know, lazy or uh, uh, desensitizes them to a lot of the things that they would otherwise be consuming in a gallery and maybe they're not as affected as they, they would be if that were yeah. among fewer images that they were exposed to? I used to think that. Okay. But I really have changed, and I'm, I'm kind of a Luddite. You know, this is all new for me, uh, you know, being on the computer and using social media. But no, I actually think it's great. And I have people who come into the gallery, because I'm friendly on social media, who say, I would never have gone to a gallery, but I want to come. I want to see what you have. Again, I don't get a lot of visitors. I hope you all will visit. But I think it makes people feel like they can go out more well, freely. I, yeah. I, so I think it's There's both. The other side. Yeah, give the other I have, side. I have the other side. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is, um, I think, seeing the image uh, and making you feel like you might be welcome to see it is fine. But I don't think that there is hardly any comparison with standing in front of an actual piece of work and getting the aura from that work and seeing what I would say, and again, this has to be. Oh, I agree with that. Seeing yes. the hand yes, of the I artist. Agree with that. Yes. Seeing the hand of the artist, which has, if you will, a lot to do with your hands, um, because that's a connection. So I think you see. Oh, no, it, I totally agree with you. I just meant that it's going out oh, more. And, and yes, live art is fantastic. So that you go, I mean, and as um, actually Caleb mentioned, is that. What's also happened is digital art has exploded. Right. So there isn't anything else to see. That's it. It's, it's, it's digital, and that's where it exists, and that's another world. So it's, it's far away from, as we said, from you know, Washington crossing the Delaware. It, 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 there are other places to go. Uh, I will, we're going to take some questions here, but first uh, I want to ask each of you, one, uh, why should people who care about freedom want to uh, support art and you know, consume art and be involved in the arts directly? And uh, related to that, what can they do? Oh, to support it? Yeah. Okay, you go first, Frank. Well, I think you cannot really separate art from freedom. If you don't have freedom, I don't know what kind of art would you have. Uh, secondly, there's a lot that you could do, of course. There's a lot more that you could do than the people in North Korea could do, I could tell you that. Uh, you could come to a meeting, you could write to your congressman, you could write a letter to the editor, you could uh, gather some... Uh, materials, art materi materials, and talk to her when somebody goes to Cuba. They could go and take some uh, paintings or whatever uh, to help those folks. Uh, you, could, you could demand to have uh, some institutions to open up not only galleries but other museums and so on that could have art from other places. Uh, you, you could do a lot. Uh, I think it was Vasla Havel who said the power of the powerless. If you don't think you have power, uh, then you should read Havel. You have a lot of power. You should exercise it. Rose. Okay. Um, I think art, and it's not just art, I'll 
I'll expand on that, is what makes us human. You know, we're human beings and we have to cherish that. And everybody is creative. I'm amazed. So I love live music. I go and listen to so much live music. I love poetry. I love going to poetry readings. I love going to politics and prose. And I go to the author talks. I think everything is equal. I love gardens, going to a garden and supporting that garden and who the gardeners are there. The act of being creative, and all of us have something. Like people say, I'm not creative. You're a great cook. You're a great gardener. You're a great artist. You're a great photographer. Everybody, you're a great writer. I love literature. is amazing. So I just believe in those things that make us human and that we have to support that. And my little world is the art world, but I'm, I'm a participant in all those other worlds, and I really believe in those worlds. Harriet? Wow. Um, I also, I, th I would say, uh, to allow yourself to respond to the art. Yeah. I know that, uh, that the article says that uh, the average person in seeing an art exhibit stands in front of each piece for 4.3 seconds or something, something like that. Um, I would say take a little time. Um, take a little time and stand in front of whatever it is. I would say there's a moment to some degree for everybody when you recognize that something is amazing you. And I would say to allow yourself, to give yourself the freedom to respond to the art. So it doesn't matter whether you're an artist, but allow yourself to, uh, to respond to it however you do. All right, do we have some questions for our panelists here? Oh yes. Uh, we're gonna start with this gentleman over here and then this lady right here. Hello, my name is Alex. My question is, could you recommend one place domestically and one place internationally to see the best public art? No, there's public so many. Art. You mean not a museum? Okay. Right, you just, you were at the... Okay, I'll take it on a little bit. Um, not to argue with what public art is, but um, there's been an explosion now, and I use that word, in architecture right now. And I would say that there are buildings now that stand as sculptures. So there are buildings in Spain. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there, are, there are buildings in Spain that just stand as sculptures on their own. Um, in LA, the towers. Um, and I would say, um, uh, well, those are two that I think. And are. Louis Vuitton. And Louis Vuitton. Was the, is in Paris. The building is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> And it's right there. You just stand in front of it. Yeah. But public gardens are the best. You know, sculpture, you know, there's so many public gardens in every city in the United States where there's sculpture or an installation. In some cities that have rich budgets, like London and New York, those change all the time. Other cities, it's permanent, but it's a wonderful place to go. This lady right here. Thank you all for sharing your perspectives. Uh, this question is directed to Mr. Enrique Lopez Bermudez. Uh, in Soviet Russia, um, uh, 
a lot of the critiques, especially coming from the adults, were masked using vis-a-vis well, -vis children's literature. And um, it, it, in, in means to circumvent censorship. Uh, Cuban artists, have they used um, any, or, or writers, have they used children's literature mm. in order to mask their critiques? Did you hear that? No. Okay. So, so in, so, in Soviet okay. Russia, the uh, critiques of the, the regime there were often masked in children's literature. Did you find anything similar oh. in Cuba? Well, we, I have a little collection of children's literature from Cuba. Uh, Cuban children, I assume everybody knows, all schools in Cuba are government schools. There are no private schools of any kind. They were all taken over. Uh, when a little boy or a little girl goes to uh, school to learn to read, and it's a good thing, they're giving a primer. It says F, Fidel. Say C, H, Che. And it says, Mama and Papa went to the Revolutionary Square. They, and then go like that, the hand, applaud it, Fidel. That's how they learn to read and write. Um, I'm a little evil because I've been sending children books to Cuba for many years. Because I've, at the center where I work, we want Cuban children to be children. Not anti-Castro books, not pro-American books. Books that children read everywhere. The Cuban government has sometimes confiscates those books because they say that we're trying to encourage sort of a middle-class culture at a working uh, class level in Cuba. That's what it is. Take, take, Cuban, uh, take children books. Also take things like Animal Farm, which uh, Cubans love to read in Cuba. <laughs> back here, way in the back, that lady right there, and then this gentleman over here. Sharon, though, that voice of a moderate, I've been to Cuba a half dozen times during the Obama administration. I was one of the few Republicans. And I got to go to the art places that they took us to with the delegation groups with the Cuban military intel people. And they were always the ones that mimicked um, Miro or the ones that mimicked Gaudi in, in Barcelona. And then I went on my own as a journalist. And I got to see the people in the houses nearby that were creating their own art that was spectacular. So I was so happy to have that freedom to move throughout the country. Um, about two trips later, I was detained by Cuban Intel because I tried to give an artist some supplies. The artists do not have the supplies that want to True. create from their heart. What is being done to help these artists so they can create art? What is being done to help the Cuban artists? Mm -hmm. Well, <clears throat> there are thousands of Cuban Americans that go to Cuba. And we try to help the Cuban artists. The reason the Cuban, there's no uh, supplies in Cuba, have nothing to do with foreign policy. It has to do with the priorities of the Cuban government. The Cuban government seems to have all kind of money to invite foreign visitors, all expenses paid. The Cuban government is sending uh, thousands of Cuban military to Venezuela. Those people should be in Cuba helping the artists rebuild their homes uh, the housing situation is, is horrible. So until there is 
until the Cuban people have the right to determine their own destiny, there are going to be shortages, there are going to be all kinds of problems. And I understand the artists, and this is the, the subject of the program today, but the artists are part of a larger issue. Cuba is not a geographical word. Uh, Cuba is 11 million people, and part of those are artists, parts of those are peasants, and we ought, we ought to keep that in mind. Here. Thank you all so much for hosting us today. My name is Jamie Likes II, and I'm with the Institute for Responsible Citizenship. My question is for you, Ms. Anna Rose. Um, I was wondering, uh, I was reading an article the other day, and I'm a fashion merchandising student, so it's in my part to stay adept to things all considered art, especially when you were talking about Louis Vuitton. That's definitely a beautiful place to go, considering all art. Um, seeing that one of your places is France for your favorite pieces, um, Europe is known well, especially one museum in Europe, in France, is holding captive a lot of African art pieces that were stolen from times past. How do you feel about that situation in regards to freedom and art and how the president should go about, President Macron should go about sending that art back to its homeland? You know, I'm not an expert in it, so it's a very good question. I'm not the person to answer that question. But I know from just having been recently in France that they are talking about it. And I know they're talking about it in Great Britain, and they're talking about it in Spain. So it is a lively issue, and it's a poignant issue. But I'm sorry, I'm not the person to answer that. I, I would say that if you take it even a little further and take a look at the world's museums, and see what they're exhibiting that originally came from someplace else, and take a look at how long or how it was there, it's a much bigger question. Um, and it's one that is right, right front and center right now. Right here, right here, and then we'll go back. Hi, my name is Mary. Um, in light of the new restrictions on travel by Americans to Cuba, I just wonder what impact you think that will have on art going into and out of Cuba. Well, the restrictions are not uh, signed to hurt artists. The restrictions have to do with the deployment of thousands of Cuban military in Venezuela. Those Cubans are killing and, and hurting the Venezuelan people. Tourist dollars subsidize that. That's the reason for that. Now, as far as the arts, uh, the art and the artists, anybody could take my name and my email or whatever. We constantly have a flow of people going in and out of Cuba because, among other things, the restrictions that were announced are for tourists. Now, Mr. Obama decided that the law that says that tourism was prohibited was not a good law, and he came up with something called people to people. So what the administration, whatever we might think about the administration, what they're doing is go back and say, we're going to enforce a law. Now, if we're going to help tourists, uh, if we're going to help uh, artists in Cuba, there are ways of helping them. 
anybody wants to buy supplies and stuff, we, we could get them to them. Uh, you might have other people. Uh, besides, the, the people going to Cuba are not only Americans, of course. They're Canadians, they're Spanish, they're, they're, there are many ways of helping. And the people traveling to the island in the last couple of years were not particularly interested in helping either the Cuban people or the artists. They were there like tourists, go anywhere, have a good time, go to the beach, uh, and so on and so forth. So the day will come when Cuba will be free and the artists will be free and you wouldn't have that problem. Right here? Okay, all right, then we'll go right back here to this gentleman. The piece that you showed by the Iranian artist prompts me to ask if you think artists respond differently to the constraints imposed for political reasons, as in Cuba, versus the constraints imposed for religious reasons, such as the ban on images of the prophet in Muslim countries? Um, no, I don't think it, that, there's, uh, that there's a difference because uh, I think a lot depends on the voice of the individual artist. So if an artist defines themselves politically, you're going to get a political statement. If the artist defines themselves religiously, you're going to get you're going to get that, and the symbols will be a little different. But um, I think that the that the response will still be to be the newspaper about it. I don't know if that answers your your question or not. Hi, thank you for this evening. Uh, one of the roles that artists have played since the beginning of time is bearing witness to their time, to their era, to their perspective, and just to their own life existence. I wondered, um, for artists that lack freedom, I imagine that takes on even greater urgency and prominence, and I wondered how you, um, how that played a role in the collection of works that you gathered tonight. Well, it was, uh, I, I would say, um, it, this, is, it, this was just a national exhibit. And the reason I, I was interested in having these two is to say it's bigger than, than this exhibit. But this was national, and it was a blind jurying. So uh, uh, June Linowitz and I looked at the 2,138 images um, that were submitted without knowing anything uh, about the artists. And we didn't know very much about them. Some artists, of course, you recognize a style. You can't do anything about that. Um, but we learned about them uh, at that, after they were chosen, in fact. Um, and so, in a way, their imagery and their message spoke for them, and we, we saw it. Any other questions? Right here and then right here. That's him. That's him, officer. Uh, Glenn Marcus, Press Freedom Team, National Press Club. Uh, 
Pulitzer Prize winning reporter Charles Krause, you may know this, opened a gallery here that's near Flashpoint. It's on G Street near the new library, and it's called the Center for Contemporary Political Art. So you Washingtonians here may just want to check that out. It's all devoted to messaging and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but uh, the subject of public art came up before, so I think there's an 800-pound gorilla in the room, and that is the issue of public art statues and removal of them for political reasons. Uh, any thoughts on that? Well, there's a, there's a, a bee's nest, a wasp's nest, a wasp's nest. Um, again, that's like, that's the I am offended question and why you do it and when it was put up. And I suppose in some way you have to say who has the power to take down those images and how does that happen? I think as a, uh, just as a consumer of news, you hear when it happens, and you hear that this statue or that one is being taken down or, or moved, but the process itself and who has the right to do that is still, uh, is still up for grabs, I have to say. No other thoughts? They did in the early 60s, uh, whatever Fidel didn't like uh, was brought down. I am afraid, although I believe that the historical artifacts ought to be preserved, but I'm afraid that once there's no longer communism in Cuba, those monuments to communism are going to come down the way they came down in Prague and many other places. Uh, I think it was in Germany that I that I went to a park where they put a lot of these statues that have been brought down. They put them all in one place so people could go and, and look at them. Just let me add one, th one thing. I think you, you have a, a huge audience here. If you keep, if you're alert and you learn about an artist in Iran or in any part in the world, who is in prison for his art, you could do something for him. You could call the embassy here. You could write to your newspaper. That's the whole idea of mobilizing public opinion. It will take you a minute, and if you do it, it could do a lot of good. Right back here. So um, I collect African-American art, and um, many of the artists who I've collected are from right here around um, Washington. And so I have, actually have a couple questions. One is, are there artists who you know, African-American artists who you know of, who might be people who you think are really fantastic, who I may not have heard of? Um, so I'm always interested in that. But the other question is just this, this issue of, art as the messenger for freedom. And so the lady behind me used the term bearing witness to their time. So I think of all the art I've collected, it bears witness to a time, but I don't know that it's expressing freedom. And so when you went through the process of selecting art for this exhibit, what was the frame that you used to determine whether that art was actually reflecting freedom? That's a good, 
question, and it was different for every image. Um, uh, uh, just a small example from the, from the subtle to the obvious. There's a little painting downstairs of five lifesavers. I don't know if you've, it's down there. Five lifesavers. Three of them are in plastic wrap and two of them are out. The painting itself is about like that. Um, and you say, what does that have to do with freedom? Well, they're lifesavers. So, I mean, I think that the, it, 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 for every image, there was a different discussion. Uh, there, were, there, was a, there was a feeling for, uh, there was a feeling for um, the dreamers. There was a feeling for black boys in green houses, which is probably, if you want people who are really addressing it, you might <laughs> say. And there were a number of them. Uh, the, um, the, the steel, how much higher, for example, uh, which is uh, the six-foot-tall piece of a man standing with his son in front of a wall, which is, done, which is a knitted piece. So I would say that each one, and it was important that each one have its own, have its own story and its own background uh, for it to be considered. Among the works that you rejected, were there any that were controversial among the curators? I mean, did we disagree? Mm-hmm. That, that really sparked controversy among the curators? <sighs> Not really, because there was a lot of discussion. The only thing that happened and I, is we were supposed to start with 50 pieces, but the outpouring was so incredible that we got to 100 and we were just about, we, were, we didn't know what to do. And I would say that there were more pieces that if I could have written a note which said if this was a different kind of exhibit, it would be in it. Um, that uh, there wasn't, we would have to say, well, we had all of these pieces. So we'd say, well, I, don't, I can't give this one up. This is, I, this is just, this is crucial. I can't give this one up. And then somebody would say, well, I can't give this one up because it's also very important. So eventually, you have to say, okay, we, we, 100 pieces are out of the question. So little by little, we had to have the discussion. And I am sorry that we, that we couldn't have those last 10 pieces. But... The gallery is what it is, and there was no other. There was no other way. But it wasn't because it was too political. Uh, that was. That was what happened. Right here. Hi, um, I'm speaking from the perspective of somebody whose family and extended family has been in this area since 1955. Uh, there's a local work of art, which is um, 40 foot high, which is before the Supreme Court now, something of very Im importance to certainly combat veterans going way back to World War I. I'm sure 
the, uh, those of you keeping up with local events in the Supreme Court, uh, the Bladensburg Peace Cross, you know, which has stood there for nearly a century to honor the 49 local, local World War I soldiers who died in battle overseas, which is a, a big controversy. I just wanted to know what your thoughts are uh, about those from your own personal or professional perspectives. I'd have to inform myself better. I can't offer an opinion on that. I'm sorry. Yeah. I mean, because it's a cross. Uh, like, well, the contention is the, the whole separation of the church and state, and yeah. blah, 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 but you're talking about potentially offending uh, right. Christians and combat veterans here right. in the United States of America. That's how divisive it is. It is divisive. <laughs> everything, yeah, everything can be, exactly. yeah. Um, what ha what's the last thing that happened? Uh, it's before the Supreme Court now, and it's, and it's being considered. Oh, oh okay. okay. Whether to take it down or not. Yeah. I'm going to invite you to enjoy our works of art here at the Cato Institute, and the art is me as messenger uh, exhibit, the Cato Institute's first exhibit. And I'd also ask you to please do subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast whenever you get a chance. <laughs> uh, I live and die by those numbers. Please thank our panel here.